0: If you have your Bibles then, let's turn to Acts chapter 17. You've no doubt heard these verses before. Anyone who's been in church much in their life, it's a familiar setting, a famous setting. Paul on Mars Hill in Athens, discussing with philosophers of the day about God. Revealing to them who He is, and today we we want to present to you um, the thought of of just simply knowing God. Um, these people on this day, Paul finds them worshiping an unknown God, and and they even admit it in their in the idol that they are worshiping at. It, the title of the idol was The Unknown God, and we'll see that here in, in the Scripture. The world today is full of all kinds of ideas, always has been. And Paul is perhaps at, in the largest marketplace of ideas in history in some respects. He's here in the midst of Greek philosophy and expounding to them about God. And we want to just take these verses of Scripture today and and encourage you with the knowledge that you can know God, that he, He does not have to be unknown. In fact, the most important thing for you to know is to know God. You can know a great many things in the world, be an expert in this subject or that, but the most important thing for you to know is to know God. And I mean to know him experientially, not just intellectually or historically or even theologically, but experientially, you know him and he is with you and you are with him. And Paul is going to share this with them and and we just want to look at what he shared on this day and ask the Lord to be with us as we try to do so and my prayer, again, is that the Lord would speak to your hearts today. The setting here is Silas and Timothy are remaining. They have remained behind in Berea on this missionary journey. And Paul has been sent ahead and he is alone in Athens. It says in verse 16, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. King James says superstitious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He is actually not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed His offspring, Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day, on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Paul finds himself here in the city of Athens. And the scripture tells us that as he looked upon the scene in Athens, says that his heart or he was provoked, his spirit was provoked within him at what he saw that word provoked it almost has in it the idea that it brought anger he was frustrated he was um concerned he he was stirred up you might say as he looked on what he saw all around him one idol after another after another many with names Many gods in the Greek pantheon named and known by their names, though, again, when we speak of them as gods, we speak of them with the the small letter G, gods, not the God, capital G, not truly gods, but idols, things that can't speak, things that can't move, things that can't help anyone. And one after the other after the other after the other, Paul's eyes rest on these idols, these things that were going to be of no use to the people that were worshiping them, that were looking to them for help. And he looked around and all of this stirred up his spirit. And I, I believe that was right. I believe his his spirit, his heart was rightly. Concerned, In Revelation, speaking of idols, in chapter 9, verse 20, it says it this way. Idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Just idols. Things that can't help anyone. And Paul knew the futility of their life. If they were to continue to commit their lives to these idols. And I think one of the things that drives men in our lives and women is is the is the need to find out what my life is all about, why I am alive, what purpose I have in my life. What is the reason for all of this? Why are there trees and sky and oxygen and why do the trees breathe in carbon dioxide and we and breathe out oxygen and we breathe in oxygen and out carbon dioxide how is it that the earth is 96 million miles from the sun the exact place and location that life can be sustained why is it that my body takes in water and nutrients from food and continues to exist what is this thing called life all about? Why am I here? Is it to get rich and famous? Is it to be loved by someone in particular? Is it to grow powerful and influential in life? Is it to learn? What is it that this life is about? You have those questions, I I believe, in your heart. Sometimes, and I think we're going to see some philosophy here in the Stoics in particular, but also the Epicureans, these these answers that men come up with to this most fundamental human question, what is my life all about? Is it just I live for 80 years if I'm lucky? And then my life is gone and, and my body is turned to dust and in, in the grave it lays and, and there's nothing after that. And I, I think inside of your heart and mine and our mind, I think within us there is a knowledge, an awareness, a certainty that there must be more than what we see with these eyes, hear with these ears feel with these hands there's got to be something more real even than that because if all there is is this life then I am with Paul who says we are most miserable what is the point point? and Paul sitting there in Athens knowing God he had met Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus he knew who God was He knew him and he knew that this life was just a a temporary place that is leading to eternity. And as he sits there in Athens and he looks around him and he sees one idol after another, he is stirred in his spirit because it breaks his heart that men are looking for meaning and looking for something to worship. That is nothing but gold and silver and wood and stone that Paul knows one day is going to melt and be gone and evaporate in the judgment of almighty God. And one day it will be here and in the next it will not in the judgment of God. And Paul was concerned and it bothered him. And I think we ought to be bothered today at the many idols that men today are worshiping. We they don't necessarily call them that they don't they don't we don't have a greek pantheon perhaps that that uh, is famous and well known today but we certainly have hollywood actors and actresses and we have politicians and we have this and we have that we have our jobs we have our money we have all of these things that ultimately if you throw them all into the mix simply what you have is one idol after another and it should break our heart if somebody is looking for their meaning in life in something outside of god it broke Paul's. It broke the Lord's heart, I think. And Paul sitting here in Athens, in the very heart of idolatry, he knew the futility of that. And today, I want to tell you: if you are seeking meaning in your life outside of Jesus Christ, outside of knowing Jehovah Yahweh, the God of heaven and earth, who has Formed us, and Paul is going to talk about that. If you're seeking for some kind of meaning in life outside of God, I will tell you, you are on a road to disappointment. You will be disappointed, and I want to warn you of that today. Paul saw this, and so, verse 17, we're told so, because he was concerned, because he was brokenhearted about that, he followed his typical pattern where he would go to a new place and if there was a Jewish synagogue, he would go there and reason with them and speak to them, his fellow Jews. His inward trouble did not remain inward. What he saw moved him to the point that he began to reason with the Jews on the Sabbath day and the Greeks throughout the week in the marketplace. Anyone who would come by and listen. Anyone who would come by and listen to this preacher named Paul used to be Saul of Tarsus. This one is preaching these strange things in, in the ears of these Greeks in Athens. And, and Paul's troubling troubled heart did not remain inside, but he he followed, I believe, the Lord's prompting to share the truth with those that were there in that city. He did not satisfy himself with the thought that he was better than the Jews who were now worshiping the idolatry of legalism. He, he did not consider himself better and, and find some kind of inward satisfaction that he knew what the Greeks didn't know. He didn't leave that silent in his heart. He spoke and he shared the truth about God with these people that were around him, these philosophers of the Greeks and these Jewish people who shared his history and his ancestry, but were missing who God is, lost him in their legalism. The scriptures in verse 18 tell us about a couple of different philosophies and people of following of different philosophies in the world, these Epicureans and the Stoics. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And so the gospel is coming into direct confrontation with the philosophy of man. Some of the best known philosophies of the day, these Epicureans and these Stoics. And what's interesting, if you understand these two Greek schools of thought, you see two opposite ends of the spectrum in human thought in answering that question about what is life all about. The Epicureans were very materialistic. They thought the only thing that was real was the material world. If you could feel it, touch it, see it, that was real. If you couldn't, then it was not real. And, and we're surrounded by that today, aren't we? This is not new, what we're living in. This has been for thousands of years. These Epicureans, though, what they came to their logical conclusion was this. Well, if all there is is this life, then the meaning and the purpose of life is to enjoy it as much as you can and gain as much pleasure from it as you can. And that is the definition of success in life. Enjoy yourself as much as you can. Get as much happiness, quote unquote, as you can what brings you pleasure, you should participate in that. Because the only thing that's real is this physical world. And we all know that we all disappear from this physical world. And so the conclusion is it's all over. It's ended. We have a certain period of time unknown to all of us. So let's just gather and let's just get as much enjoyment and pleasure from life as we can. This idea is alive and well today among a great many people. This idea that we are uh, to live in such a way to bring us the most pleasure. This idea is so healthy, in fact, that right and wrong itself are becoming defined by whether or not it brings us pleasure. People want to know, should I do this or that? How often are people encouraged? Well, does it make you feel good? Is it what you want? Is it what will bring you happiness? Is it what will bring you pleasure? Or on the, stated on the other side, will it avoid pain? Will it avoid hardship? Will it make your life easier? Well, then clearly that's what you ought to do. And it's a misguided philosophy of man. This idea on one end of life is about enjoying it. And it's only about this material world. And so eat, drink and be merry, as they say. Maybe that's your belief. Maybe that's what you're thinking. That my life, it's all about gaining pleasure. It's all about being happy. You know what happiness and contentment and joy. Listen, they are the result of you finding God and seeking Him and sacrificing whatever's necessary to serve and honor Him, your Creator, those things that often become the objective should merely be things that attend you as you. Ob- the objective of your life is to find the reason that you're alive in the first place, which Paul's going to tell us is God. One moment you were not, the next moment you were. Formed in your mother's womb. Called forth from nothing, the Bible tells us. God gave you life. You come out of your mother's womb and you begin to live in this world. And out over time, because you're a human being created in the image of God. Because you have questions that animals do not have. Because you have feelings and thoughts and complexity within you that far exceeds any other creation in the world. You ask the question, why am I here and what am I to do about being here? And so many times in this world, there's still so many Epicureans out there to say, well, clearly the answer to what you should do with your life is enjoy it as much as you possibly can. And just get as much pleasure out of it as you possibly can. That's on one side. That's, that's one extreme, perhaps, of, of man's response to the question of knowing the purpose of life, which, again, to me is the same question as knowing God. You can know Him, but some, in dismissing that idea or worshiping idols and collecting to themselves all these other small g-gods, these idols that, the, that Revelation told us can't speak, can't hear, can't move, Let me ask you this, by the way. What are you serving in your life that can't speak, hear, or move? It's probably something. One way or the other, to one degree or another. The Epicureans' answer to all of this is let's just be happy and get as much pleasure in life as we can. And now you have the other side as well, the Stoics. Stoicism. You've probably heard of that philosophy. Paul did. He confronted... These philosophies with the gospel, a stoic, stoicism, another philosophy founded in Athens around 300 B.C. by Zeno of Citium, that, that philosophy sought to make sense of life through human reason primarily. And, and by the way, I know I am simplifying and going maybe a, a quarter inch deep in these philosophical ideas and that there are all kinds of splinter groups of philosophy, but I'm trying to give you the gist, the general sense of the answer that man's philosophy has to finding God instead of looking for him, the Epicureans say, well, let's just look for happiness and that'll be our God. That'll be my God. That'll be my idol. Maybe that's the idol that you're seeking in your life and you're frustrated because you won't ever find it. You haven't yet and maybe you're giving up hope that you will, and if that's the case, I hope that you would turn to God. The Stoics, on the other side of the spectrum, they sought to make sense of life through human reason, and they still do. Some very, Stoicism's having something of a revival in our day. A number of very well-known books have been written in the last 20 years, even, of Stoicism. It, 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 Stoicism, though, it accepts The emptiness of life just accepts it. That's what Stoicism ultimately teaches you to do. Just accept it. And perhaps one of the chief tenets, don't worry yourself with things you can't control or change, and you can't control or change the emptiness of life. Because they didn't find their answer in God either. They accepted the emptiness of life. Stoicism and Christianity have many outward things in common. It might seem on first view, but striving to uh, things like striving to live a virtuous life. We we ought to. There's some there's some worthwhile things in the Stoic philosophy, but it must never be taken to where their conclusion goes. We should be honest. We We should be people of integrity and endurance and patience and I believe calmness and soberness. There, there are a number of things that if you put them on a chalkboard on a list, there would be some, some overlap in that Venn diagram that you think of, the three circles where things all, all three things have something in common. Well, in the diagram of Christianity and Stoicism, there's some things that are on the list together. And the Stoics, perhaps not as naive as their Epicurean counterparts, who thought pleasure was to be sought and enjoyed. The Stoics didn't go down that road, and and perhaps because they were a little more cynical, they themselves being cynical and resigned to, to meet the emptiness of life and even their eventual death with what I would think of as simply calm hopelessness. Calm hopelessness. That's the Stoic response. Just accept it. Just deal with it calmly. Respond to it. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote this about Stoicism. He said, Christianity is not Stoicism, which is mere resignation, is the way Jones put it. Stoicism puts up with things, bears them, just manages not to give in, with courage and a tremendous effort of the will, Stoicism goes on and just gets through. That is Stoicism. Bearing it, putting up with it, not failing, not breaking down. And there's some, there are some uh, uh, respectable things in that, we might say. But Lloyd finishes, that is not the Christian's reaction. We, so we have in this crowd, what, what does this have to do with the message today, these two competing philosophies? We have in this crowd of people that Paul is speaking to one group and, and another, both of which have very different views about the truth and, and a worldview about what life is all about, but both of which led them to an ignorance of God and to an idol called the unknown God. The Epicurean, pleasure in this world and this life alone is my goal and it is what I'm seeking after. I will tell you today, it will never be enough. It will never be enough. The Epicurean needs to be told, they don't last these pleasures you're seeking. They can't last. And and even if you obtain them for a very fleeting moment, they, they are taken from you. And even if you do get them and they're all that you imagine them to be, they're going to go away. But most of the time, I would even add to that, they're rarely what you thought they were going to be before you had them. How often in your life have you obtained that that you thought was going to bring you happiness? And the moment that you got it, you were looking for something else within days, if not hours as you looked at that thing that you got and you sought it maybe for many days and years and then you obtain it and your hands clutch it and you have it in your possession and then all of a sudden it dawns on you, I am still empty. I'm empty. And so what does a good Epicurean do? Let's go find something else to make me happy. Let's go find some other person to make me happy. Let's go find some other job to make me happy. Let's go find some other hobby to make me happy. Let's go fill this void with some new friends. Those old friends are not what I thought they were going to be. Let's go find a new church. That old one is not what I wanted it or thought it to be. A good Epicurean fills the void with more emptiness. You see the futility. A stoic, on the other hand, gives up on hope and meaning and joy, leaves it behind, accepts the emptiness. But that is not God's design for man. Psalm 1611, I think we read it just last week. God, you make known to me the path of life in your presence. There is fullness of joy at your right hand. There are pleasures evermore. Jesus himself says in John chapter 10, verse 10, that he came to give us life and not only life, but life abundant. So the Stoic misses it. The Epicurean misses it. They miss it for different reasons. Stoicism, again, it might be summarized as the error of human mind without the heart. An an acknowledgement that nothing in this world is going to speak to my heart and give me peace and settle me and settle the question, why am I here? Who is God and who am I? Epicureanism is never going to answer it. Stoicism knows that this world is never going to answer it. And Epicureans just keep in their insistence that there's something here in this world. They go from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next. And Stoics, on the other hand, they give up hope and they resign. That there's really any hope to be found in the world. And they perhaps dedicate themselves to being, quote, good people. But in the end, they're hopeless. They're hopeless, and that's not what God wants us to be. That's not, when you find God, you do not find hopelessness. You find hope eternal. No, it's not the pleasures of this world that give you that peace. But neither is the fact that this world can't give you pleasure and peace mean that there is no pleasure and peace to be found. It's found in God, the unknown one to most of the world. And that's why Paul wants them to know him. Both of these views, they they miss it. Stoicism summarized again as error of human mind without heart. Epicureanism, I think, can be summarized as the error of the human heart without reason. Epicureanism almost becomes a willful ignorance and rejection of the obvious truth that life's meaning can't be found in pleasure because pleasure and happiness are goals over which one has no control. You don't. In an instant. Whatever pleasure and happiness you might be enjoying can be taken. And it says to a Stoic, it says, and a Stoic, if I had them here today and the Stoics were on my right hand and the Epicureans on the left, the Stoics on the right hand, you just heard a lot of amens on the right side of the house. And then I would turn to them and say, oh, but there is pleasure. There is meaning. There is hope. The Epicureans would say amen to that. Both would be missing the point because it's an unknown God. It's God that you must find and know. The God. And that's what Paul says they take him, and I'll try to hurry along here. They, they took him to, to Areopagus. They said, we want to listen to what you have to say. What is this teaching that you're presenting? It's strange in our ears. It's, it's almost like their hearts and minds were on this unending search. When we read in verse 21, all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. It's, again, it's like their hearts and minds were it's constant unending search, always looking for something new because what they already knew they found was lacking. So they're always looking for something new. There's got to be something else. Ever found yourself like that? There's got to be something else. There has to be something more. You find something that somebody presents to you and says, this is the way. An Epicurean comes along and says, oh, you need to just live life and live it for all your pleasure. Live it to make yourself as happy as you can. And that resonates with your human heart, your fallen human heart to a degree. And you say, yes, that's it. That's what I need to do. And you follow that guy for a little while, Mr. Epicurean. And you you obtain some things that you thought was going to make you happy. And then all of a sudden it turns to poison or at minimum turns to dust and you no longer have it anymore and you're just as empty as as you were when you started if not more so because now not only are you disappointed that you don't have happiness you're disappointed because the thing you thought was going to make you happy didn't and now what do you do well Mr. Epicurean says well you just need to find something else to make you happy something new someone new somebody prettier somebody smarter somebody more handsome somebody taller somebody with more money somebody with this and that that's what you need Mr. Epicurean just gives you thing after thing after thing, all the while worshiping an unknown idol of happiness and pleasure. How many times has that been you? And the Stoics, maybe, maybe you get to the point of cynicism with your fellow Stoic, and you've been on the left side with the Epicureans this whole message, and all of a sudden you go, you know what, you're right. There's nothing in this world that's ever going to make me happy. So you get up from your side of the house with the Epicureans and you say, you guys are crazy. I'm going to go sit with the Stoics. This life has no meaning. It's empty. And you sit among them and you feel a little better. Because at least now you've admitted it. You've acknowledged it. There is a strain of truth in what they say. There's no meaning in this life. What they don't do is finish the sentence apart from God. I know him. Yes, this life is empty, but he is not. When he saved me when I was 11 years old, he called me out of this empty world into the fullness of his presence with him. From that moment, I was headed toward fullness and joy. So I can't sit with my stoic friend I can't sit with my Epicurean friend. Paul sees these idols all over the city and in this place, and he's telling them, and he's, he's confronting them. He's talking with them. I can imagine these very same thoughts were being spoken 2,000 years ago by Paul as he spoke to the Epicurean and then turned around and said, and the Stoic, standing on his right, pointing his finger at the Epicurean and saying, yeah, you tell him, Paul. And then all of a sudden Paul says, oh, but Mr. Stoic, you're mistaken too. You don't know him either because you wouldn't find hopelessness if you knew God you'd find hope everlasting but here they are wanting to hear something new something new something new because what I know is not enough nothing that they had heard to that point in their life left them settled in place one left their hearts empty the other left their minds empty. It had not given them lasting purpose or peace or meaning. This idol to an unknown God of the Epicureans and the Stoics, and I know there were others, these, this idol to the unknown God testifies of this, I think, as well. There is there not? When you put an idol here, when these men and women on this day back in Athens, and they said, you know what, maybe we missed one. Maybe we don't know. His or her name, this God. So we don't want to offend them. So we're going to put on this al- idol, this altar to the unknown God, just in case we missed him. But do you know what that does? So all your other gods, it acknowledges that they're not enough. Why else have an altar to one you don't know if you're worried that one you don't know is as important as the one you do worshipping something and holding out hope in something else looking for hope in something you don't know is admitting and acknowledging even if you don't use the words you're admitting that 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 you worship and know is not sufficient Man's continual move from one thing to another to find the meaning of his life should tell him clearly that all that he has found to that point has proven insufficient, else he would not be searching still. But he is, and perhaps so are you. So Paul says, I want to tell you who this God is that you're missing. I want to tell you, Epicurean... This world is not where your hope needs to be. This is not the God you should seek. None of the gods you think you know are even here much less sufficient to what you're looking for. But here they are, verse 21, always listening for something new, something that might finally bring them peace and stability and certainty. Paul takes advantage of that opening in their willingness to hear him and preaches a sermon intended to reach them with the truth about God, who he is. And I'll summarize we're we're just now to Paul's sermon and I won't walk all the way through it. I, I, I don't want to belabor your patience. 22nd verse and 23rd verse, it talks about the absence of religiousness in man is never the issue. Paul standing in the midst of Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious or superstitious. So I, I believe that religion is, it attends your life. Man is forever on a search to know and understand who he is and why he is here and explain his existence. The Christian view, which has been dismissed, by the way, as uneducated, backward, and credible, and, and uncredible, that, that view has been dismissed. Yet, yet consider, by the way, what, what has been pulled into the vacuum created by the absence of the Christian worldview in our nation. Consider what's been pulled into that vacuum. The Christian worldview, we live in a post-Christian nation. That may be offensive to some, but to me it seems as obvious as the day is bright. The Bible's been removed from about every public forum. There is the whole idea of educating children with this word first and as a foundation has been dismissed by our nation. And so as that Christian worldview has been sucked out of our lives, it's created a vacuum and so what's been sucked in? Other ideas of man, Epicureans and Stoics and all kinds of others. And, and they've dismissed the Christian worldview. Why? Well, there's no evidence, they say. Of course, they're wrong, but that's what they say. You can't feel it. You can't touch it. You can't smell it. You can't sense it. You can't do any of these things. So it's not real, they say. So they pull the Christian worldview out and what's been sucked into the vacuum? Oh, well, we're all here from Nothing. There was nothing, and now there's us. what? what are you talking about how 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 insane is that okay, okay that's that's crazy. so here's the next idea. Aliens put us here. See, you've got to ask the question: Why are you here? Who are you? Who's God? The Christian worldview's been pulled out, and the vacuum has brought in man's ideas and they are as uncredible as they can possibly be. They are as absurd as they can possibly be. But that's okay because we don't want to deal with the message that God gives us which is what? And I'll summarize it here. Paul said look, God has looked past your ignorance but now he calls everywhere to all men to what? Be happy, be healthy, be wealthy, be wise. Come to church so that I can bless you with money and relationships and business contacts and so that you can look good and dress up and look nice and have friends. And, and so come to church. Does he, is that the call? No. God calls us and he tells us that he has is, he is given us life to know him. And in order to know him, he calls us and says, Repent and that is your real issue with the Christian message. Just don't pretend any longer that your issue with the Christian message is that it's not credible because it's every bit as credible as any other theory you're gonna give me. Your issue with the Christian message is that I don't want to repent. I don't need to. I'm a good person. The Bible says quite the contrary. And I think in our own hearts, we know the evil that lurks there. The thoughts that we would run from this room in utter shame if I put them on a projector and ran a video of all the thoughts you've ever had in your life. There's the issue. Repent. You want to know God? You're going to have to repent. Ask God to forgive. This is not a, I don't want to beat your head over this. I had to repent. Everyone has had to repent. Of what? Of sin that separates us from God. Of that song that we sung just earlier today before we we began of Christ dying on the cross for our sin. He bled and he died there so that I might have life. Paul is saying, this is the one who I am declaring to you, this one who has sent us his son. And I will tell you this, it is God that gives to man in the most purest sense. It is not man who gives to God. Why? Because God already has it. It's already his. It's God who gives to man, is it not? The God who made the world and everything in it the world the, the one who gives us life and breath and everything according to verse 25 now god does give us the privilege of giving back to him and that's what he's asking of you and me give back to him what he gave to you you know i thought of this this morning and this might I didn't run this through, and metaphors and analogies can often get tricky and get you in deep water, but you know your life is a little bit like a library book. It's checked out. It's not yours. It's checked out. It's in your name. They wrote your name on the card that checked out that book. You're responsible for it, but it's checked out. The library owns it. Your life is, is God's. He one day called you from nothing. Gave you life. You're going to have to return that book someday. The due date is coming. And there'll be no late fees because there will be no late returns. Paul says to them, God has fixed a day, didn't he? Isn't that what he said? He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness by the one He has appointed, Jesus Christ. Your life is that library book. I I don't know. Listen, I don't know when your library book is due, but here's a due date. Here's a due date. And the God is going to, to, to judge whether or not He knows you and you know him he's not going to judge how good you feel like you did in the world none of us would none of us would tilt that scale enough in our favor none of us and the thing that is going to tilt the scale is do i know him do i know this god is he in my heart And one day I'm going to return the library book that is my life. And I'm not going to stand there and say I deserve heaven because I was an Epicurean philosopher and I was right, or I'm a Stoic philosopher and I was right. I'm not going to stand there and say I deserve heaven because I was theologically correct and my doctrine was as precise as it could possibly be. I'm going to stand there and say I'm going to heaven because of Christ. Because of what Jesus did. He's God. He's my God. And I love him and he loves me. And there was nothing about me that was good, but there's everything about him that is. I just will finish. We had three, and I won't belabor this. Every time you hear a preacher say there's three things, you go, oh boy, another half an hour. I won't belabor this. Three three responses. One, you're crazy. Isn't that what some of them said? Paul, you're crazy. Two, we'll listen again not dismissing you but um, I'm not buying it yet and 3 there's the answer there's the answer Dionysius and Demars and others we're told in verse 34 said that's the answer I know him so I guess among those who mocked among those who said we'll listen again though we're kind of hesitant and then there were those who <coughs> believed. I, I guess the only question that I'll leave you with today is, is which group are you in you're in one of them you think I'm crazy you won't be the first probably won't be the last think I'm nuts and then I, maybe you're maybe, maybe you're among that second group which I guess arguably is better than the first. I hope, I pray, maybe that if you know me or or the sense that you get from me is like, I don't think that guy's crazy. <laughs> I hope you think that. I don't think he's crazy, but I don't know about what he's saying. But I can't remember who the human humanistic uh, philosopher, I can't remember, Hume maybe, went to, was it Woodfield's sermons, and somebody asked him, why in the world are you going to listen to this man preach? You don't believe a word he says? And he says, yeah, but he does. Maybe that's the category you're in. I hope at least. I don't know what he's talking about. I don't think he's crazy. I know he believes it, and, he, and his, it seems reasonable what he's saying, but I'm, I'm just not there. If that's you, I would ask you to continue to, to read and to pray and ask God to show you what you yet don't see. And just because you don't see it doesn't mean it's not there. And if you're among that third group, then let's go. Let's go. Let's go tell others. Let's go find our Mars Hill. Let's share the truth of who God is with the world and with those across the street and across the ocean and the mountains and the rivers and the valleys and tell them who God is. Because that's what the world needs more than anything else is to know God. And so much of the world doesn't know him and worships unknown idols who can't speak or hear or move. My God can do all of those things. He's proven it to me time and time again. Which group are you in? Examine your own heart, only you know the answer. I don't. I don't know, but he does. And so do you, if you're honest with yourself.